this is Mick Tully and you're listening to Mixed Martial Arts. We're taking uh, John and Melissa now from Wayne Stokes to Nathan Leverton, so we're on the M5 now. So we just did a really, really good session with Wayne Stokes and we worked on the Valet Chudo Guard. Yeah. Yeah? Can you uh, explain where you first learned that? I first um, learned that when I was in Brazil. I can't quite recall whether it was the first or second time I was in Brazil. It might have been the second. Anyway, it was around 1987, about five years before the UFC kicked off. And I was training at Gracie Baja at that time. That was when Gracie Baja was, before it became a franchise, back when it was owned by um, Carlos Gracie Jr. and uh, three of the Machado brothers. So they were all equal owners in the original. Gracie Bar. There was a lot of people training there. Henzo Gracie, High and Gracie, all five Machado brothers. Uh, Hegan was coaching. You know, a lot of people there. Yeah. And Hilly and Gracie. So we're all we were all in the same room. It was a pretty unique time. Uh, and, and three times a week, uh, Henzo Gracie, Henzo, myself, Hillion. And a couple of others, one or two others, would go downstairs to a basement. Right. Because all the walls were matted, all the mats were there, padded walls. Rats scampered out when we opened the doors every time. <laughs> and a few other guys from some other styles that would all train no gi. We were, we were supposed to train gi. Yeah. Uh, there was an old saying back then, sem kimono e pojada. Sem kimono e pojada is Portuguese for, if there's no gi, it's a fight. Right. So... The, you, weren't, you weren't supposed to do no gi unless it was a real fight. So it was kind of frowned upon, at least by Carlos Gracie Jr. So we had to sneak down there and do it. And, you know, he, he wouldn't have been happy. He wasn't happy with that cross-training and with some of the guys who from different systems and stuff. We'd all just do and it. And was this just because it wasn't jiu-jitsu or...? Well, it because it was... Jiu-jitsu is very, as you know, Mick, it's very tribal. Yeah. So, and it was even more tribal then, you know, like or as tribal then so you didn't cross train you didn't train with other people let alone do no gi no yeah. gi as I said sen kimono e pohara no gi it's a fight so it wasn't like but, but, but we did we snuck down there and uh, did this training put gloves on and one of the first things you'd learn to do when you're on the bottom which was me because I was the ignorant gringo is to pull guard <laughs> And yeah. then there was ways of tying your partner up in that closed guard so you couldn't take yeah. strikes. So I just called it the Valetudo guard because we used to call that training session the Valetudo session. Yes. So I called it the Valetudo guard. It's probably got another name. I don't know. But that's what I've always called it. And there was a little plan that I quickly learned from that guard to survive and then attack three basic ways. So, so and it was high percentage. It worked for me pretty well. And kind of Henzo helped me out with it because uh, he could speak English yeah, um, what, at the time. Hillier couldn't and no one else could, so, yeah. And what was, what was like, so, yeah, you did mention that you learnt this and um, I, do, I do like the idea that, yeah, you've admitted yourself that you were a white belt and it was a limited game and you went, yeah. you were downstairs, you learnt a sweep and then you oh. came up. Well, one of the things I learned down there was pretty effective, how to do a hip bump sweep. But, you know, hip bump sweep in BJJ can be challenging. You've got to close that distance between the ground and your partner yes. and get your arm across to the other side. 
but with the Velotudo guard, you kind of break them down, head control, stuff their arm, head under your armpit, grab the inside of your thigh, relock your legs up, so they're all tied to you. You're already there, right? You're yeah. already there, so when they go up, you're already in the position. You just gotta undo your legs and then okay. point your hip up there and hit him under the armpit and knock him over. So I went up in the next jiu-jitsu class, I hit that on a brown belt, which was kind of <laughs> like unheard of that, uh. you know, a gringo, well, I was the only gringo in Brazil. I was the first gringo, in my understanding, to ever go there. Wow. So a gringo hitting it, let alone a white belt gringo hitting it, and let alone a white belt gringo hitting it on a brown belt, Carlos Gracie Jr. said, where'd you learn that? And I said, well, Henzo took me downstairs. I learned it down there. <laughs> and we weren't supposed to be down there. So Carlos Gracie Jr. kind of got upset with Henzo and You us. threw Henzo under a bus, I huh? certainly threw him under the bus, yes. Henzo was up for it. He's a funny guy. Yeah. He pretended to be sorry, and we'd never do it again <laughs> until next Wednesday. Yeah. <laughs> then we're down there doing it again. Uh, Enzo's, Enzo's easily one of the most charming men. I remember you told me before I ever actually went and trained with him. You, you did say to you said to me that he was probably one of the only guys you'd ever met in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu that was universally loved. loved. He is loved. Loved, yeah. He's lovable, you know, and he's smiling and friendly and. He spent a lot of time, he gave me time, he didn't have to give me time, Yeah. you know, but he gave, he gave me time and helped me out, did a lot of things, um, you know, to help me in those first um, few years. Yeah, he was great, I mean, he really he really liked, and he looked up to, you know, his cousin, uh, Higgin and Jean-Jacques, who were the coaching, who were the ones coaching them, and so right. he looked up to them, so it was really good, and his brother, um, what's his brother's name, Half. Half. yeah. Half, yeah. Well, Half's... Half's like a tough dude, right? Half was, but everyone said to me, oh, go to I said, Half said, come around train at my school. And, um, and I, I said to Carlos Gracie Jr., I'm going to go train at Half's school. And he said, no, don't do that. Stay here. And other people said, oh, you've got to be careful. Half's crazy. And I went around there. Half was fantastic to me. Like, really? He was, it was one of the best. He, he couldn't speak a word of English, but he went, again, out of his way to show me what happened and taught me some great things that I still use today. And um, I think he was wonderful. So, you know, people say stuff, but people have reputations, but quite often the reality is very different. I, well, that, yeah. My experience with both of those guys, they were caring, thoughtful, went out of their way. Right, well, you did, what, like this is like, a, like in jiu-jitsu history especially, well, that my, I have this theory now that martial arts and jiu-jitsu now have a history that's intrinsically linked because uh, regardless of what the initial motivation for the UFC, which we all know now really was an infomercial for Grace and Jiu-Jitsu really, they, now, they had no idea it was going to be the sport because if, I think if they did they would have been connected to it a bit longer than they did, yeah, they know the money. But it was the first time that arts were questioned, you know, I caught the tail end of that whole thing where it was like, you know, he's a black belt. You know, his his hands are registered as deadly weapons. You know, <laughs> you know that whole thing, and he could kill you with one punch. And then the UFC proved it. But uh, the UFC proved first of all that, you know, it wasn't the man. You know, it it was the style, but it is then the man with the style. Yeah. And did you have any idea when you first started training in jiu-jitsu? Because back then it was, you know, you were training in a garage and. It wasn't for everyone, you know. Yeah. Did you have any idea it was going to be this huge? No. People, people in Australia where I live, um, they many people credit me with like being some kind of visionary that 
first guy to do it, first guy to bring back Bridget Jason for that, do seminar. I, I wasn't envisioning anything. I, I didn't think anyone would be crazy or insane enough to want to do this. <laughs> think we call BJJ because it hurts. Yeah. Oh. It, 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 it breaks your ego. It, it just, if you're, you know, you can't fake it. There's nowhere to hide. You know, all of that stuff. So I didn't think anyone would be interested. And for quite a while they weren't. Like for the first five or eight years, no one wanted to know about it. And uh, I came back. I was a purple belt when the UFC kicked off. First right. UFC. Um, and it was only after that that people grudgingly started taking out BJJ and adding some form of it to some of the training. And even, it was only five years after that where it started to get out of life, get some legs, you know. I yeah. But no, I never, I never predicted anyone would be wanting to do that, let alone, you know, now I could walk into a, a school and see 50 people on the mat. You know, there's doctors, lawyers, engineers, women there. I mean, it's, <laughs> who would have imagined that? Yeah. Not this money. So, you know, no. I'm no visionary. I was just a crazy idiot running in that direction. <laughs> <laughs> And I look behind me, and my goodness, there's a whole lot of people following. <laughs> yeah. It's like Forrest Gump, right? Yeah, exactly yeah. like Forrest Gump. <laughs> yeah. So, you mentioned, you know, the, the professionals. As I said, you know, when I was at Henzo, it's like, like Bourdain guy was there, the celebrity chef, because there was a couple of guys who were rock stars. I'm showing my age, and I had no idea who these guys were. But then you had all these professional guys, Wall Street bankers, lawyers, and then obviously with children and women getting into it I personally don't think the jiu-jitsu scratched the surface of you know, the, where it can go to what do you think? No, I think that it has the potential um, to become just the biggest martial art that this planet has ever seen that has by more people than any people have ever practiced any martial art in the history of humankind and I think the reason I say that is because, you know, just not, not to disparage, you know, Taekwondo or anything other martial arts, they're all great and they all offer something. But, you know, you walking up and down a, a church hall kicking pads, you can only do that for a certain amount of years before 99% of the population is going to say, got it, rightly or wrongly, got it, I'm bored, next. Whereas Jiu-Jitsu is this endless complexity like chess that can keep you tethered for a lifetime I mean it's the simplicity of BJJ that gets you there meaning you don't need much of it to prove its effectiveness in a fight yeah but it's the complexity that will keep you there for a lifetime so other things are very effective in a fight like for example you know Jeff Thompson's concept of the fence you know fence yeah. question smack him with a preemptive shot beautifully elegant in its simplicity but is it enough to keep me training for my lifetime the answer from me is no way um, three months I'm done rightly or wrongly right I'm not saying whether that's right or wrong maybe you've got to train it more but I'm just saying I would be bored out of my brain I need challenge I need something more and I think most people do yeah. right so I think that BJJ offers that depth of complexity that can keep you there a lifetime. You know, you can do what you, why you do BJJ first year can be vastly different from five years in, vastly different from 10 years in, 25 years in, and you're still making discoveries about not only 
techniques and theories and concepts, but why you're there. Yeah. And problem solving. So I think it's just got everything. Yeah, you, you, you know, you have hit the nail on the head with me. What I like, I, you know, I think, you know, being Irish and Catholic, I've got masochistic tendencies anyway. But um, I actually said to one of the guys, I really wish I could just go back to being a white belt, white belt, because the level of ignorance that I had, and it wasn't arrogance, the level of ignorance I had, it was actually quite a nice place to live, because the more jiu-jitsu I've done, the, the, you know, the more I realise I haven't got a clue. Yeah, even more so than the, you know, the Jeet Kune Do and the Kali. Because with the Jeet Kune Do and the Kali, I know, what my, I know where, my, where my strong suits are and I can nine times out of ten drag you into that range. Whereas with Jiu Jitsu, Jiu Jitsu is like the ultimate version of the hangover the movie. Because you go out there and then you end up in Vegas and you, you know, you're like Mike Tyson's turned up with a tiger. And you, you know, because that's Jiu Jitsu. Jiu Jitsu drags you into places you never thought you were going to be. And then it's not just... You know, as you said earlier today, it's not the, uh, you have to enjoy the process, you know, as you said, you get through the whole week just for those two days at the end of the weekend, you can't do that, and that's that's what I think what Jiu-Jitsu really has brought to me, it's like, just enjoy, em, em, embrace the suck, you know what I mean, as you have written on your bag, and it, if you don't mind, that's hopefully going to seek me in nicely to some of the people that you've trained and some of the agencies that you've trained. First of all, how did you get into that? Into oh, teaching the police, the military, things well, like that. It happened quite a long time ago because I was the first one on the ground in Australia with the you know some BJJ concepts, yeah, meaning a game plan and stuff like that. Um, you know, some of the guys in the special operations group, which was the Victoria, that's a state in Australia. Each state has its special operations group. You know, right? I don't know what you call them here, but armed, you know, they're fully kitted up and they go in for the really bad stuff. Yes. Um, those guys, there was only 24 of them in, in the whole team in our state. Wow. And uh, four of them come from my school. So, Jeez, yeah, so, so. the powers of the B set thought, you know, what's going on here? Like, how come four of these guys all have a connection to me? So they thought, I must be doing something in my training that's either attracting that kind of person or preparing them the right way mentally so they can pass the entrance to get in there or whatever. So they come down and have a look and then they ask me to do some work for them and I um, designed a little defensive tactics program that would work for room clearance drills, you know, in tight corridors, taking people down in corridors so you can let all your mates go past, you know, and clear yeah. the rest of the house out. And in that in that sphere, that landscape or that space, um, special ops space, it's quite a small space. So, you know, you've got sky marshals, you've got army commandos, regiments, and you've got... And they all kind of are somewhat connected. Yeah, so they might, they might train in sniper, right? Special operations police might go and do some sniper training, and then the snipers might go to the air marshals and do some aircraft and stuff. So yeah. they do cross over a little bit, and of course one agency talks to the other agency, and next thing, I'm the guy they're calling. Wow. Can you come up and do this? And I get calls from America. Can you come to Quantico? Can you design our program? Well, you see, that was like when you said Quantico in the seminars. I was loving that. Yeah, so, I, you know, I've been around it kind of weirdly enough. I think the thing they liked about me is they often ask me, can you design a program for us? And I say, I cannot until I know what you do. 
I don't understand your problems and I can't pretend that I know your problems and the things that you're going to come up with in, in a aircraft or in some room in Afghanistan or running down a hallway you know in Leicester <laughs> yeah exactly um, so they're, and they're all very different kinds of problems so if you can tell me or brief me about the biggest problems that you have I can come up with maybe a solution to those problems and then a training methodology to match that solution so you can teach idiots how to do it and yeah. so um, that's what they like about me so I don't go in there going I'm going to teach you guys how to do defensive tactics for anti-terrorism who know that how many people have taken down a terrorist on a plane and choking him unconscious the answer is none no. so you've got to be honest and open and say I don't know but if you show me your world for a week and you tell me based on all of your stuff what your dramas are yeah. I can maybe bring something to the table with my problem-solving brain and say this is the way we're gonna do it and here's a training model to skill up everyone on that stuff yeah and they all know that I do that now and they like that, so um, yeah, I keep getting the work. No, well, you see, this this is the thing, it, and it leads me back to I, I've had this a few times where guys have always asked me about you, and I, you know, you know, you've heard me say this before. You're in the top five educators I've ever met. That's across the board in any in anything, you know, not just martial arts. For a person, you know, famously, yeah, you invest how much a year? In learning how to teach, what was it? What was it? You used to, was it ten thousand Australian dollars? Yeah, I used to spend. I spent a lot of money on myself. Yeah, yeah, on yourself, trying to learning how to do it. And I, I said, look, this guy could be teaching me anything, but the way that he teaches you to teach is um, like, like life changing. And when you mentioned the problem solving, uh, I'm trying to think of a good word that I can use. But the only word I can use actually is almost. Dispassionate is probably the best. It's not the nicest word to use, but I've seen where you've done it before, where you actually can remove yourself from having any sort of, you know, feeling about a problem, and just go, no, I just look at this very, very logically, and then you solve it. And you know, did you learn to do that, or? Well, people like have problems like an argument, right? You know, like. Most people, and I've been here this last week, and people arguing about the bricks and stuff and all of that. Yeah. Um, but most, what I'm, what I'm not seeing is true argument. In my view, most people, when they argue, are just defending an ideology to the death. Right. And, and, whereas true argument should be, I want you to prove me wrong, because that would be awesome, because my view of the world would change. Yes. The world is flat. The world is round. Well, I believe the world's flat, you believe it's round, we have an argument. But nothing could be better than you winning that argument from my point of view because you would enlarge my view of the universe and the world and how it works. Whereas I don't think most people argue that way. They argue to defend, not argue to discover truth. So you want to argue to discover truth. And that's what I've not been hearing that in the radio. Yeah, you know? no, no, no. Because true argument means I'm open to accepting what you've got to say in the hope that you can convert me because that would be so awesome. So when you look at a problem, like a jiu-jitsu problem or a physical problem, I look at it the same way, you know, I, I want to uncover a truth, not just defend an, a thought that I already have. Oh, in that situation, I do this. That's irrelevant. 
yeah. right? In that situation, what's the optimal thing that should be done? By who? Under what circumstances? In what environment? There's so many factors to bring into it. Well, I've got nothing to do with it. So uh, step back and look at it. Be dispassionate about it. And that's part of being uh, learning in a learning mode, right? You're yeah. wanting to learn. Open. Totally open. Not biased and not defending an ideology or a technique or a game or a... It's, it's, it's mad as you're saying this, just as you're saying this, that's the sort of thought process that I try to apply to my own training, where I go in there and I say, look, you know, we, we know this because we've seen it and we, uh, we can reel off a list of names of guys that we know who are like, really, really good. You know, I know it's a bugbear of yours if, whenever anyone says he's a world-class martial artist. You get, yeah, I know you don't like... You don't like the idea that if you bandy that around, it devalues what world class, yeah, that world class ranking is. But being able to walk in and just go right, okay, right now I know nothing. Show me Obi Wan, you know. And that's what, yeah, for me, that's what the jujitsu gives because not only does it it continually reinforces the fact that you don't know anything, and it continually reinforces this belief that I have to be so good behaviorally flexible that what was you know chapter and verse yeah 30 seconds ago is out the window now because it's just not relevant anymore you know so did, when you first started with the jiu-jitsu did you realize that it was going to take you down this line of thinking where you'd have to be more philosophical with everything or was it just no, like to it's wrestle? hard it's hard to know it's hard to know you know because as you go through life, obviously you think more about stuff. No, I, th- I think I was already on that path. Right. Yeah, you know, I think I was already on that path. Because I was already, you know, trying my best in my limited way to take a mixed martial arts approach back right. in 1975 before wow. it was sexy to do that. <laughs> so, you know, I was trying, I knew that it was, it was about, it was about verbal, it was about kicking, striking, takedowns and groundwork. I already knew that. 75 and I was doing my best to you know build something like that so when BJJ came along I obviously I had to, I had to embrace that because it was so effective in terms of groundwork so I think I was already kind of on the path of certainly on the path of questioning the status quo and not being satisfied with what was available I was very dissatisfied but you, you, you just said just as you said that uh, and this is actually a first, John. Uh, it's not often now that I, I especially with martial arts, I, I, I ever get this. But just the way that you phrase that, and you talk about the ranges, and you, and you, you know, because everyone says it's kicking, punching, grappling. You, you, you just went, it, it's verbal, it's kicking. When, when did you, when did you realise that? Because just as you say in it, I understood it, and it's something I've always known. But I've never looked at anyone. I've never, I've never met anyone that's turned around and said, no, you know, that's actually a range. Yeah. How, how did you add? Yeah, have you, have you thought about that or? No, but you talk your way out of things or into things. As you know, <laughs> being Irish, you probably talk your way into things. <laughs> I've talked my way in and out a few times. In and out of things. I mean, no, there's, there is, that's just part of observation, like of life. I mean, I think everyone's done that, right? Yeah. But a big thing to me is observation, right? Like, observing what's happening, how John Smith in the States hits that low single. Yeah. You know, how 
observing people, being very acutely aware of the environment and what's happening on, I think that's very crucial to learning. Yeah, you know, observing, observation of our environment. So you observe things and you see it. And when I'm saying observe things, I don't mean externally too, I mean also observe yourself, observe what happened, look at the whole thing, see the big picture, step out of it a little bit, look at the whole thing, and you see lots of stuff. Well, it's just, again, uh, Wayne Stokes is where you were saying, you, you, were talk, you were basically explaining about the, the coaching and the visually doing stuff, and then, you know, get, giving people this auditory stimulus, and you said, you know, I want them to feel it, I want them to see it, I want them to hear it, and you said, if I can find out a way of getting them to smell it, yeah, you know, it was like, unbelievably, uh, like, observant is the best, best way. When we've, you know, we've talked before when we've met and you've talked about like Kiyosaki, uh, meeting him and then some of the great communicators that you've, you've met, right? How much has that helped you? Not just in like teaching, but in your business and day-to-day life. Well, um, I don't do business. Uh, I mean, it might look like I do, but I don't. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the least bit interested business never right. have been but if you do something well enough um, you seem to do okay so it's more that you know I do my job well yeah. um, and I get asked back <laughs> um, you know, it's like you, you know you don't have to know much about business you build the best kitchen yeah in the country people will want it people will want it everyone's got a kitchen and yeah so I think that's an important point you don't have to be business minded to be successful in that way a lot of people say oh wow you do this business oh no I don't you know there are people who do martial arts business please don't like me with them it's a lot of no, them no. I, don't, I don't like that um, but <laughs> you get rewarded um, for, for doing that it's kind of like the bee collecting the honey you know bee does its job it collects the honey a cross benefit of that is cross pollinization between flowers yeah the bee doesn't care about that it just wants the pollen i don't care about the business and the money and the success i just want to do what i do well yeah happy byproduct of that is you get a house yeah you know that stuff (laughs) right um but uh i think uh yeah i've um you know i've been influenced by people like rob kiyosaki he was an extraordinarily great communicator probably the first people the first person I saw and I thought wow I'd like to be able to do that kind of job right. in the martial arts landscape I'd like to be able to connect with people on that level explain things like him I'd like to be so confident about my subject matter that people could ask me anything about any aspect of it and I'm not going to go uh, 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 stutter I'm just going to go back you know <laughs> I want to be that way because that's the way he was yeah. So it's not, it's not so, you know, it's, he was inspirational. I just wanted to be that way in, in our, our landscape. Yeah, well, you see, you're the first, I, I've actually written an article, you, you, you figure in it, and I said, you're the guy who taught me, taught me the existence of Bookman, Bookman, Bookminster Filler. Yeah. and Berimbolos and it literally was the only two <laughs> things that I could think of that began with B that I could connect <laughs> up but I remember years ago you were saying uh, chase your passion not your pension and you were the first person uh, that I met and it was great because it came at the right time where I'd spent years trying to be really successful in business and I'd done okay but 
it wasn't my drive driving motivation wasn't to be just excellent at being me and then yeah. paying that forward it was I had some sort of idea that something externally you know like I'd just be going there for the ride you know and I didn't realise that it was just enjoying the process and it's the process was the important thing and the reward was just that came for free and it was again it was the Buckminster Fuller's area and it just got got me going what I do want and this is literally this is me being really selfish you once said that you had you had a guy I don't know if you trained with you or you met up with him um, and he was either a brain surgeon or a neurologist or something and he was explaining to you about the benefits of repetition and the coatings of mylar on the brain synapses and stuff and obviously I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm a construction worker so don't ask me to explain it but can you explain how you met this guy and then basically get a brief sort of synopsis of what that was all about because I find it fascinating I can't remember so some of my synapses must have disappeared right my jet lag I can't remember who that was um, but yeah at some, at some point I forget uh, but it was yeah at some point you know my understanding is of course that neural pathways are created by you know in our mind that give us the ability to flex our bicep and bring the apple to our mouth and eat it or whatever yeah. and um, the the, the Synapses, uh, which is the gap, the little, there's a little synaptic gap between the n- nerve endings. Yes. And what happens with it is that that gap becomes breached over repetition through repetition, um, especially if there's excitement. So, for example, if, it, if the we want to excite the class up and raise the excitement or the state of the, the class, myelin, which is the protective coating on the outside of the nerve, yeah, is manufactured and laid down. Like um, you know, like insulation on the outside of a wire. Oh, like it's coating, la- right? Yeah, 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 like a coating. It's laid down at a much phenomenally faster rate if there's excitement, which makes sense, right? Yeah. We go to the water. I see you get eaten by a crocodile. I cannot. It, that can't require too many repetitions of that uh-huh. for me to learn. Otherwise, I wouldn't live, right? It's a hot stove, isn't it? So exactly. Yeah. So you have to learn very quickly. So when there's a high level of excitement, adrenal dump, um, though that myelin is laid down more quickly, which which basically effectively bridges the gap, that synaptic gap, which which effectively hardwires us for a response. So, you know, that all goes into the whole idea of teaching in class. You've got to be careful about when you talk someone through a technique for the first time and they're making mistakes and not haven't got the best version of that technique. If you hardwire that, they have to live with it for the rest of their life. Yeah, I say they're marrying that technique without <laughs> dating it first. Yeah. So that can be problematic. Yeah, both most certainly. Right? So you want to be very careful and mindful about those first repetitions of any technique and make sure it's absolutely optimal before you then raise the excitement level on the mat, get everyone up to that state and then start repping it where they're going to start to physically lay down that myelin and hardwire the crap out of it. Yeah. Then it's very difficult to disengage from that behavior later on. Well, you see, this this is the thing. You're the guy that, guys who are listening to this, whenever I've taught, taught a seminar, I do always... I should actually pay you, pay, pay you uh, some sort of uh, 
fee for using this line, but Royalty, I always, yeah. I always like, we'll, we'll figure it out later. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, where you, you call it the perfect storm, you know, not the movie with, uh, yeah. with George Clooney where they all die at the end, but you always say the perfect storm, we create this and we make it so perfect and then we reverse engineer our way back out of it. So the first thing you learn is this is how awesome it is. Yeah. And then we add the, where did you come up, come up with that theory or what, that, that practice? Oh, I don't know. I've got a hundred, a thousand teaching practices, but, but one's, um, you know, like, well, you know, you wouldn't get your child as a four-year-old, throw them on the mountain bike, point them down the slope <laughs> on a rainy day and say, do it. Uh, because you said you wouldn't want to set your child up for failure. Yeah. You would put the, the, we call them trainer wheels, yeah. and it'd be a sunny day, and it'd be no wind, and it'd be just flat grass, yes. right? Of course. So the same thing with humans, just because they get bigger, doesn't mean their learning machine changes. No. I want them to be successful first. So you yeah. want to do the, what would be the perfect situation for a double leg? How to do it? Where's the range? What's happening? And then slowly, when they feel good about that, now we add some drama in. Yeah. When it's not perfect range. And they're smacking you in the head, you know. So then, you know, and eventually people will t- drop the training wheels, go to the bumpy track, hit the mountain bike, and then do it when it's snowing. But yes. you've got to do it in that order, not the other. <laughs> not just come in like a random idiot. Yeah. Well, you, you know, just as you said that, one of the things that I've seen, I know uh, you're an ambassador for CrossFit, and you think it's probably one of the greatest things ever to come into the, into the world, right? I know you're not a big fan of it at all. No, no, no. But, um, uh, well, well, before you go on, yeah, let me clarify, because I often make jokes about CrossFit, at CrossFit's expense. Um, well, if I make jokes about you, at your expense. But, but it's not the CrossFit. It's, I'm sure the person who started CrossFit had standards. Yes. You know, <laughs> like I'm sure the person who opened up the first Starbucks store yeah. was passionately into coffee. And yeah. I would have loved to have got a copy of that he's guy. A, he's the guy I want to see. Yeah, yeah but, but that's not that's not the Starbucks in Scunthorpe, you know, or Grimsby. <laughs> I mean, standards have slid. And um, so I, I, I think that it's the same thing with CrossFit. The concepts are great, but what I'm seeing is people jumping on the CrossFit bandwagon with a weekend's training, opening up a CrossFit center, or a martial arts center for that matter, or yeah. anything else, it doesn't matter, yeah. right? But and they're putting the focus on, come on, get it done, move it, go, more reps. So they're putting the focus on resistance and reps per minute, meaning rate, Yes. over perfect form. Yeah. It should be form first, exactly. absolutely. And yeah. then rate, and then resistance. Yeah. That's In that order. And if I want to peel it back, you take away the resistance first, take less weight off, make the box jump less high. Um, you know, that should go before rate, and rate should go before form. The last thing to disappear should be form. And if yes. your form's disappearing, stop. Yeah. Because not only are you hardwiring bad behavior, but you're gonna get injured. You know, yeah. so that's what I always have to yeah. go, you know. You get injured and then you can't train. And then you can't train, which is the, which defeats the whole purpose of people doing CrossFit. You know, oh, where'd you get, why can't I try, I'm injured from, Doing, a, you know, I tried to do 200 box jumps, you know, with the two um, purple kettlebells the other day. Um, I've injured my lower back and hurt my. Really? Why are you doing CrossFit? Oh, so I can be stronger. Why do you want to be stronger? Well, I want to be fitter. Why do you want to be fitter? Oh, so I can live my life 
more yeah. efficiently. Well, you don't seem to be doing that because you're injured. Yeah. You know, so I think people have got to be clear on why they're doing things. And um, I just think it doesn't take any more effort to do optimal form. No. You know, it just requires awareness and mindful. Mindfulness, being in the moment yeah. and standing every day. Yeah, yeah, you know. I mean, I, it's like someone dropped into the ocean and they're drowning and they're splashing around like a crazy person. I admire their passion. I admire their enthusiasm as they die. <laughs> okay? So, so you can't trade out technique or form for crazy movement. No. You'll die. You'll drown. Yes, definitely. It's raining, everyone. Yeah, so can you hear this? I'm not sure whether you can hear us, but <laughs> since you've left the European Union, the European weather has gone too. <laughs> what, what, what sort of weather is this, John, do you think? I, I don't know. English weather. It's Aussie weather. Uh -huh. Pardon me, Melissa? Aussie weather. This is, this is not Aussie weather. Oh, it is. No, it's winter at home now, so yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Right. I'll never be going to Geelong if the weather's like this. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, see, old practice makes perfect. No, practice makes habit. Practice makes permanent. <laughs> you know, and you can practice crap <laughs> and hardwire crap just as effectively and as efficiently as you can hardwire good habits and good movements. And so where do, you, where do you see martial arts going in the future? I think that, um, well, I don't know about martial arts, but I can talk about what I think about BJJ. Yeah, go for it. I think that BJJ used to be this one idea where it was really about fighting and fighting other martial artists, perhaps, fighting in the real world. I caught the tail end of that era. Yeah. Um, and then it, it, it became popular. And as it became popular and all these schools started springing up, there was competitions available because there were schools. Yeah. And so now you've got schools that, you know, that, that focus just on you know, their focus is competition. Yeah. And you've got other schools that their focus might be on the self-defense part of it. And you've got other schools that might be more a focus on life, training for life, BJJ for life. Yeah. Which is kind of like, more like me. I think, irrespective of which one of those, you know, types of schools that you run or train in, I think you should know something about the other things. So even if it's BJJ for life, I should know about competition, be able to deal with that, and about fighting in the street on self-defense. Yeah. I think if it's all about self-defense, you should still know about competition and about BJJ for life. So, you know, it shouldn't be all about that, because I think that's narrow. Yeah. So I think you should have a focus, but still be able to have a foot in each other. But as, I think as, as time goes forward, you're gonna see schools that become, it become clearer on what schools are focusing on what. Yes. Whereas when, when it was early days, and still early days, and especially young instructors, they try and be all things to all people because they've <laughs> got to pay the rent. Yeah. And they need to make a living. And so, so, so it doesn't matter who comes in. You're a UFC fighter. I've got, this is a school for you. But I'm an engineer. And I just want to learn about life and I want to get fit. Yeah, this is a school for you. No matter what. And I think that's actually what's happening in a lot of schools. Yes. I think as time goes on, we'll see less of that and more of, this is the school I'm running, this is our focus, and that will attract people that are like-minded. Yeah. And the school over there that focuses on that other thing, that will attract those people. 
at that time of their life on that. So I think that's what will happen. It'll just be more specialised. Yeah, I like I like the way that you said it. You don't go into Costa Coffee and expect to have good coffee, even though they say they're selling coffee. Mm. You know, just if you're going to do that, you know, be 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 yeah, you know, be exceptional at that one thing that you have. And there'll be a line of people out the door, up the road, and around the block for Mario's espresso, because yeah. that's all Mario does. But it's the best espresso in Tuscany and that's that's what they are lining up for yeah <laughs> that is exactly that is exactly right this is one thing you've said before and again yeah I, I use so many John Willisms it's unreal right but you remember you said once about identifying I think it was the eight students or the five students you don't need in your school yeah and the first time you told me that I was like what school owner needs to get rid of? Like, that's eight <laughs> monthly contracts. Yeah, and then when you explained it to me... Have so. them killed and buried. <laughs> Scunthorpe, I think, I think, is the go-to. Okay. Um, well, you think of it like this. If you think of a school, think of anything. You know, there's a, there's a bell curve. Right. There, there's someone in the school that you would just love more of. Like, that person is awesome to train with, positive attitude, helps other people, gets out of his own head, doesn't have an ego, you know, like ticks all the boxes, right? Yeah. You, you can know. You know who this person is, right? Yeah. And, you know, everything's a bell curve. That person's at the far right. Most people are somewhere in the middle. He has to have a counterpart on the left. Yeah. Identify that person and get rid of them and shift <laughs> the bell curve to the right. <laughs> And that just ups the standard, right? Yeah. So you've got to be able to and be willing to do that, which is a pretty difficult thing to do. It's e- I'm, you know, it's easy to say. Yes. It's hard to do because you need to pay the rent. But the weird thing is, the more you do that, the better it's going to be because it's a nicer culture. And you only hear it when you kick out that person. Yeah. 28 people come up to you later and go, what took you so long? You know, and you don't realise how many people you lost. You kept this one idiot... And lost 28 yeah. because of him. So ultimately, you're not doing yourself any favours by trying to be all things to all people. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly that. It was only when the Nuremberg trials happened that we realised how bad you were. Yeah. You know, that's you know that's how it worked. I know we're, yeah. you know, we're taking it to the complete, exact, the, other, the other extreme. But that was it. When you were talking about, you said before about, you know, map culture and creating culture. Again, you were the first person because I literally I, I didn't look at it as yeah this is like a petri dish and it's up to me what bacteria I allow in here yeah. and I had no idea I thought it was now I'd just get a room throw a few guys in tell a few jokes do some martial arts and that would be it and then you you were the first person I met that literally said no you know you get to control this and when it goes out of control I've seen you do it on seminars where you get everybody on board immediately you know that one story about putting your feet together? Yeah. We explain that. I love this. Oh, right. oh, well, what we're like talking that. about, I think, uh, what you're alluding yeah. to is uh, setting a tone. Yes, sir. So you, you, you want to set the culture. You can't, in my experience, you know, allow a culture to flourish that you don't like and then try and change it later on. That's really difficult. Yeah. You set the culture day one. This is it. This is who we are. This is what we're about. And that's uh, we, we need to set that tone because like, people are very good at adapting to the culture, as long as they know what it is. <laughs> you know, right? So, uh, no, I expect you to be not kind of fit together, 
feet exactly together, like you're in a world feet together contest, <laughs> while we, you know, while we're warming up our knees, and it's irrelevant from an exercise prescription point of view, but it's absolutely paramount to setting a tone about expectations. So then those expectations follow through to things much more complicated than that. You know, when we want to do an arm drag to a fireman's carry or something, then, wow, you know, you, you, you've already set the tone that I need you to follow instructions to the letter and be exacting with what you do. So I think that's really important to, you know, set that tone. You would yeah. think you don't have to set the culture once, but in my experience, a culture's got a shelf life of about two weeks, you know, and then it's... Really? Well, someone will start either by accident or design, nibbling away at it, eroding it. So you've got to continually set the culture all the time. Yeah. And in a class, culture has a shelf life of probably 30 minutes. After an hour and a half, they're getting tired, they're getting this, they're getting that, so you have to continually reset the culture. Yeah. But this is the thing, right? And I don't know what the answer to this is. This is something, one of the reasons I love love doing these things. The difference between teaching a class and teaching a seminar, because a seminar you have, you, you know, that's three hours, four hours. Mm. So how do you continually get the guys? Because I've seen you do the, you've got a break, and I like the way you do it. You haven't got two minutes. You have got one hundred and twenty seconds. One hundred and eighteen. One hundred and sixteen. You see, this is why I love it. So. <laughs> But when I, I've noticed that when you do these water breaks, I don't think those are, those are, those are actually water breaks. I see that now and I see that as a reset button. Mm-hmm. Where you, and I've seen, I've, I've watched you and I've observed you do this where you say, right, we need to press the reset button and get them back into the learning mode. Just that, and it's always towards the tail end of whatever technique they were drilling. And as soon as they've got it, boom, and you go again. That's a conscious thing, right? Yep. Yeah. And again, is that just from doing... 30,000 classes? Everything, 25,000. 25, right. Um, everything I do on the mat is mindful. I don't wing it. But I mean, it, I do everything for a reason. Right. Voice modulation, use the words in the right order, you know. <laughs> um, you know, running around sideways around the mat, right? Yeah. Okay, let's run... Same direction, change sides. Because if you say same, change sides, they go the other. Two people will run the opposite way. Yeah. So you say, you know, like same direction but change sides. Um, you, you know, you're doing an arm bar. Okay. Um, you know, you don't say lift your hips when his arm is straight because they will lift your hips before you've finished talking. Yes. You don't say fire when the range is clear because someone will have pulled the trigger. When the range is clear, pause for effect. Fire. That way there's less deaths. Yeah. And, you know, so the words are important. The order of the words are important. Shrinking from a paragraph to a sentence to a single word. Yeah. So, you know, I'm going to drop my level. We'll go to drop level. We'll go to drop. Yeah. You know, and I'll do that for every technique and every time I explain because it'll end up being drop, step, fold, step, trip. You know, so... So I'll go from paragraph, 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 paragraph to sentence, 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 down to word, 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 word. So, you know, every single thing like that, it's all going to help. It's all going to make a difference. It's all going to, it's all geared toward making them succeed. They have to succeed. I'm driven by outcomes, you know. I want to solve the puzzle that is them. The puzzle that is people not being able to do this thing. That's a puzzle. 
it needs solving, I want to solve it. Yeah. That's my motivation. The fact that they get something out of it is a byproduct. What <laughs> means to follow 101, eh? Yeah. yeah. It, it's funny, just as you're saying that, I'm, I'm thinking, I know it's outcome driven, but do you look at people and go, right, I have to, I have to look at this and I'm teaching 30 people. So what I do is I have to treat all of you like you've never done this before. And I'm, not to call them idiots, but to go and just make this. I make this so simple that anybody can get it and then raise the, raise the collective IQ together. Is that, Look, is that the deal? E equals MC squared. Right. Is elegance. The math behind it is complicated. Yeah. I can do that math. On the math. That's not helping anyone. And I don't care about impressing them. I don't care that they go, oh my God, look at all that math. That's irrelevant. Can I get them to do it? Can I bring it back to E equals CMC squared? Can I make it elegant so that everyone can do it? That's the only thing that counts. That, that, that's it. That's, that's what, under the definition of a teacher, isn't it? Yeah, most guys who teach martial arts, the students are there to serve their ego or I don't know what. Uh, and it's a selfless job. Yeah. It's a very, very selfless job. I want it to be simple. It's it's because it's complex. There's complexity there. Yeah. But that's easy to sound all wordy and all philosophical and to sound all deep and meaningful and all of that. Yeah. But yeah, that's cool. It might impress people. But I think you've got to go to another step further. Yeah. Can you simplify that so everyone gets it? <laughs> <laughs> if everyone gets it, you've done something real. Yeah. Right, and done something worthwhile. <laughs> yeah, unbelievable. Do you know what? Like, we're now literally we're pulling up to Nathan Leverton's like in a couple of like seconds. You'll have hundreds of questions. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, Nathan. Do you know what? Nathan's easily the smartest guy I know. Oh. Yeah, in this country, easily, and surprisingly, one of the nicest guys as well. You know, it's unbelievable. So, Melissa, I hope you enjoyed your nap. Super duper. And John, again, thanks. Thanks for everything. And I mean that, you know. Thanks for taking the time to listen today. You can listen to more shows like this on MixedMartialArts.com. Mixed Martial Arts is an abrupt audio production. Today's show was produced by Luke Berry. To find out more about podcasting or get help with your own podcasts, head over to AbruptAudio.com forward slash start.